Hello, and welcome to the Degree of Freedom podcast. My name is Jonathan Haber, and today we're going to be joined by Justin Reich, Richard L. Menschel, Harvard X Research Fellow, a fellow at Harvard Berkman Center for Internet and Society, and visiting lecturer at the Schuler Teacher Education Program at MIT. For those of you who are fortunate enough to attend Harvard X's January event when they released detailed analysis of the first edX courses offered by Harvard MIT, and if you weren't, a link to a video recording of that presentation can be found at the Degree of Freedom website. Justin was the guy on stage with Peter Bull, Harvard's Vice Provost for Advances in Learning, explaining the results of one of the most important data dumps yet related to the reality behind massive online learning. While information related to other courses has been making its way into public discussions as partner universities working with MOOC providers like Coursera and edX shared their findings with the public, the recent releases from HarvardX and MITx was the largest and most systematic divulgence yet of the type of critical information needed to make sense of who is taking a MOOC and what they do after they hit the enroll button. And what does that data tell us? Let's find out. Justin Reich, welcome to Degree of Freedom. Thanks so much for having me. So assuming some listeners aren't familiar with the reports HarvardX and MITx published in January, could you give them an overview of just what was released? Yeah, sure. So we released simultaneously 15 reports and working papers. Um, There's one that was a synthesis across the 17 MITx and HarvardX courses that have been launched in the 2012-2013 year. So there were 11 course reports, one for each of the courses in uh, MITx, and then we had a report that was the two Harvard School of Public Health courses, the biostatistics and the health and environment course, um, one about Heroes X, one about Justice X, and then Terry Fisher, who's a, who taught the Copyright X class, let us republish his report. Um, and then one synthesis across all of those courses. And I would say, you know, one of the reasons why we put a bunch of effort into releasing all these individual reports at the same time is one of our messages is we think that the, the, the whole field is better understood from the bottom up than from the top down. In other words, rather than leaping to generalizations and, and synthesis and aggregation in MOOC research, which probably people should do at some point. We think it really makes sense to try to understand what the component pieces are, because we, you know, one of the things that really struck us was the degree to which faculty had very different intentions in the courses that they were trying to create. The different bodies of students showed up for different kinds of courses, and you're really probably much more likely to make better inferences from research finding if you're attentive to those important differences rather than jumping to, you know, what's the average across all of the courses. What did that synthesis document have to say about what MOOCs might have in common, and how do the individual reports indicate how each course might be unique? I would say the the thing across all courses which was most striking to me was, and we try to capture this in a couple of different ways, that just about any way you could imagine someone using a course, there's someone using a course. So there are people who are auditing courses, there are people who are completing every piece of a course, there are people who are trying to complete the absolute minimum number of elements necessary to earn a certificate. There are people who are doing nothing. There are people who are dabbling in bits and pieces. And you can sort of imagine just about any possibility space for a course, like there's someone sort of in that slot. For instance, there are as many people who are viewing more than half of the high-level units of a course as there are who go on to earn a certificate. So there's some evidence that there are about as many auditors who are doing a substantial amount of work in the course as there are people who are earning a certificate in the course. So that's was important to us. And then when you look at 
Um, you know, there are a third of people or something like that who never do anything in the course, but then of the sort of half or so who are who are doing a little bit in the course, what that little bit is ranges substantially. Some of them are doing things that seem like, you know, the use cases that look like people diving into a particular chunk of material and really making some sense of it, and then some people just dabbling and looking around and so forth. Uh, so capturing that variation and then trying to quantify it, in particular, as a way of getting past using certification rates, measuring people did they pass or not as sort of the single measure of MOOC success. And it becomes particularly important when you look at the details of some of these courses where you've got, you know, for instance, in the ancient Greek hero, Greg Naj being really explicit that he, that he doesn't care whether or not students are trying to earn a certificate. That people who are coming in and auditing, participating in the discussion forums, you know, he describes that mode of participation as legitimate and honorable as those who are trying to earn a certificate in the course. Um, so faculty are telling us in some of these courses, we want learners who come and learn however makes sense to them, that our job as researchers is to develop metrics or uh, visualizations or other ways of capturing some of that. Um, so that diversity of activity would be one piece. So another similarity would be in people's persistence rates. So one of the things we found is that regardless, people can enter these courses at any point. You can, in some cases, you can register for them months and months in advance. You can register them on the day that the final exam is due and all the materials are due, you can register for them after that point. You can actually, you know, so you're a dropout the moment you register. You can register where it's certainly possible to learn things, but it's impossible to earn a certificate. But looking at the people who register before the, the certificate is due, whether that's the day of or, or months in advance, one of the things we see is that a cohort who enters in any given week, about half of them will leave within that week. But then after that, persistence increases substantially. So if you make it to the second week, about 20% of that cohort will stick around. If you make it to the third week, about 10% of that cohort will stick around. And, you know, those vary a little bit from course to course, but the general pattern holds. Which means that basically, you know, colloquially we can say, if we can keep you in a course for a week or two, you're actually reasonably likely to persist through the rest of it. So that was interesting. But both it was actually surprising to us that that ended up being true for people who registered months in advance or, you know, well, well into the course. You know, not, none of the research that we do tells can tell course developers what to do afterwards. You know, we can give people some facts and some guidance and then they have to apply their own values and instructional judgment and all those kinds of things. But one thing I, I'd be interested in having some people play around with is if we know people are leaving in the first week, if they know that they come check out the first week's material and then a lot of them go, let's have the first week of these courses be a synopsis of the entire course. So instead of having week one of 12 be, here's the first of 12 things that we need to look at, have week one of 12 be, here's a summary of everything. And then what we'll do in weeks two through 12 is unpack what we talked about in the first week. So that if you show up and you're only going to stick around for six minutes or two hours or whatever it is, let's make sure you get not necessarily the first piece, but the most important piece in that those six minutes or, or 12 hours. I've heard a statistic that says students who complete the first assignment in MOOC class have completion rates close to 40%. Is that something you saw in your research? MIT has probably better data on that because they have a more consistent pattern of what they mean by first assignment and so forth. We didn't use that exact metric. You know, so that's one of the challenges is that lots of these courses don't have things that are sort of obviously comparable as a first assignment. So, you know, a first assignment in heroes would be answering four multiple choice questions. You know, and the first assignment in CS50 would be a problem set that should take you between 12 and 15 hours to, com to complete. And so those are pretty different 
so, th so there's nothing in our in the reports that we publish that use that particular metric and publish that. We do have a section of the synthesis report where we say, of, of everyone who registers, here's the percentage that com that completes. Of anybody who's ever viewed the courseware, taken one um, action inside the courseware, here's the percentage that complete. Of people who explore more than half the courseware, here's the percentage that complete. But generally speaking, you know, certainly the more you use even really minimum thresholds of activity as a way to sort of characterize a population, the higher percentage of that population that goes on to complete the course. And I noticed uh, on your charts that uh, there was an awful lot of people who were kind of bunched up on the upper right, meaning they not only passed, but they went way beyond what they needed to do to pass. And it struck me that they might be people who wanted to learn as much as possible so passing was just a byproduct of that yeah I think that's right I think there's I think there's definitely some evidence that, that, that there are use cases where in any kind of distribution of activity at all when you look at the tails of the distribution there there are a always people who do everything and in things where there's a fixed amount of stuff to do if you say you know there are 300 learning objects in this course there are going to be some people who engage with all 300 learning objects and then if you look at things like you know the number of times people click play in a video if the you know if the average certificate earner ends up clicking play 400 or 500 times in a course there's going to be someone who 17,000 times has clicked play or you know and then a, and, and a group of people who have just done much much more the discussion forums the same way you know if the median number of contributions to the forum in any given course is some number like 12 you're going to find people who have done hundreds and thousands of so there's there's some really interesting use cases here to explore whether or not passing is a byproduct for them that seems like a good hypothesis for some of them, but there's definitely this sort of interesting population of super committed learners and, and figuring out who they are and what they're up to. You know, this is one of the themes that comes out of the work too. I think is we can probably characterize some of their activity using statistical models that capture their behavior patterns and things like that. But like someone should also just call these people up and talk to them and say like, you know, why were you so fired up to spend this much time in the ancient Greek hero or biology or whatever else? In your presentation in January, you mentioned that some anthropological investigation might be the next step in your research. Anything in particular you have in mind along those lines? Yeah. So, you know, broadly speaking, we just want to know more about what's going on inside people's heads. And so we're doing a much better job this year. And again, we're doing a better job not because anyone messed up, just because we're building on top of what we did last year. We're doing a lot more survey research, which will have a lot more open-ended kind of stuff. You know, we have a pre-course survey now, which is standard across all Harvard courses all year. The same survey is going to be used now in all the MIT courses that are starting this spring. So we're going to have some common questions that we can get at folks. We're starting to do more end-of-course survey stuff and, uh, and capturing some of that. And then I actually have one master's student who I think is going to partner with a couple of other researchers at, at Stanford and at Royal Roads to help start building a body of um, interview data where we start getting in touch probably with no particular population of people, people who have persisted in a, in a MOOC at least three weeks and just start asking some really fundamental questions about what's their experience like when we ask them to talk about it what do they talk about why are they doing it what are they thinking about how does their work go um, so yeah i think uh, that's just a little kind of skunk works project to some extent but hopefully there'll be much more work capturing you know people's experience before getting back to those individual reports can you tell listeners about what you learned from what you call the colbert effect 
So one of the things we're keen on is we, I would say as a group, we generally think that certification rates are really, are not the best tool to use to summarize MOOC quality for a lot of reasons. One of the reasons that we talked about was that we think there are meaningful learning experiences that people are having that don't lead to certification. And so a certification rate omits those. The other problem with them is that essentially marketing efforts can dramatically increase the number of people who participate in a learning experience and decrease the rate that, at which people get certified. So one example of this is Anand Argawal went on Stephen Colbert's Colbert Report on July 24th, 2013. When that happened, there was a spike in registration. The five-day moving average of registrations after that event was about uh, three times what it was in the period beforehand. And the number of those people who went on to earn a certificate doubled too. So about twice as many people in the five-day period that followed who earned a certificate after registering that day than, than the five-day period beforehand. And of course, um, you know, a certification rate is a fraction. If you triple the denominator and you double the numerator, um, then the certification rate will go down. And in fact, the moving average before July 24th, Harvard X had a certification rate of about 3.2%. And afterwards, it had a, for the five days afterwards, a certification rate of 2.5%. So if, if you're one of these people who says certification rates are how we measure MOOC quality, then you have to agree that Stephen Colbert made Harvard X worse single-handedly, which doesn't make any sense, like in part because Stephen would never hurt us. But also, if you think about like what faculty member is going to begrudge Stephen Colbert because he tripled the number of people who registered and doubled the number of people um, who completed the course. So that, I think, anecdote helps to characterize why, you know, we say it sort of highlights the truthiness of certification rates. Like they all the numbers involved in them are actual numbers, but the inferences that you're drawing off of those numbers are probably not the ones that you want to, especially if you're using certification rate as sort of a straight proxy of quality. Lower certification rates can be a proxy of really effective marketing efforts that draw in lots and lots of people and capture more people in the end for deeper learning experiences, but a smaller fraction of them. You know, I think the other thing that all of this has made us think about a bunch too is like, what's the correct frame of reference for characterizing MOOCs and for comparing MOOCs too. So the, the most natural frame of reference to use is a residential college course because we're borrowing all the language from that, these um, learning experiences come from and so forth. You know, and certainly if you compare things like persistence in our classes to persistence in a residential class, you'd be like, wow, this is, you know, really a disaster. Another frame of reference you could use would be sort of marketing funnels, participation funnels, engagement funnels for online content. And, you know, when you talk to people who have tried to build experiences for people on the web and when they look at our participation and persistence they're totally amazed at the extremely high number of people the extremely large percentage of people that we can get making you know month-long commitments to the learning experiences that we have here so from you know from those kinds of perspectives people are shocked that we can get a so many people to come into these learning experiences and then be such a high fraction of them to persist along in them so you know the, the frame of reference that you choose determines a lot. Not what, the, not what the facts are, but how you judge those facts. Back to individual MOOCs, one of the reports I found most interesting had to do with the Harvard MOOC Copyright X, only because that course was so different from other massive online classes. Can you tell us what was unique about Copyright X and what light the stats about that course might shed on other MOOC data? Sure. So Copyright X is this terrific course. It's offered by Terry Fisher, um, who's the director of the Berkman Center and, and a professor at the law school. And they admitted by application 500 students 
they broke them into 20 sections. Uh, and then those sections were facilitated by a third year law student teaching fellow. Uh, and they actually met synchronously every week. So it's in many ways different from the sort of large scale online courses that are being offered everywhere. It wasn't open to everyone, although the materials were openly licensed. So you, you could actually sort of follow along if you wanted to. This year, They've also added 10 different places that have agreed to offer satellite versions of the courses. So they'll be facilitated by Internet and Society Centers around the world using the same kind of courseware to, uh, that Terry Fisher built for the class. And then I don't remember the exact details, but of the 500 people, you know, you know I think 350 or 400 of them went on to um, finish the class and 280 passed the exam or something like that. You know, again, this question of what's the right certification rate uh, is an interesting one. Essentially, the numerator of that is never difficult to calculate. Like, we know exactly, there's no controversy over how many people are under certificate in this class. What the right denominator is is more interesting. Should you choose all 500 people who were admitted? Should you choose only the 450 so people who actually went on to ever participate in the course? Should you choose all 5,000 or so people who applied to get in the class? Because one of the things that you could say, Copyright X certified a pretty high percentage of the people who were admitted into the class. They certified a pretty low percentage of the people who expressed any interest in wanting to participate in the class. And if you wanted to make a comparison across certification rates in, in a MOOC, you were using all the people who ever registered, then you might choose to compare that to all the people who ever expressed an interest in one of these other kinds of classes. It, but it still wouldn't really make a difference because to be able to pass you know, copyright X, you had to have weekly active participation in discussion forums. You had to take a three hour time final exam. In others of our courses, some of that is comparable to the difficulty level of some courses like CS50, where to be able to pass the problem sets, you have to spend hours and hours and hours, you know, writing code and figuring things out. In others of our courses, someone who already knows moral philosophy and moral reasoning could probably in an hour sit down at uh, the justice class and, and answer enough questions to be able to get a passing grade there, you know, which are just a series of multiple assessments that Michael Sandel didn't care that strongly about. You know, they're the least bad option to evaluate and offer certification in that course. So all these kinds of comparisons are are tricky. And that sort of comes back to this idea of understanding things from the bottom up. That if, if courses have really different intentions, if they have really different learning models, if the technology can support them differentially, especially around assessment, you know, so the, the tools that the CS50 team have built to assess your competence in computer programming are pretty awesome. You know, they can not only evaluate whether or not your code works, but how efficient is it, how, you know, both in terms of how long it takes, how many lines you use, how well is it designed, you know, all things that are relevant. Our capacity to assess at scale, you know, the degree to which people have thought carefully about what it means to be human, um, the essential question of the Greek heroes course, you know, we just don't have tools that allow us to, to get, get at those kinds of things nearly as well. So for all those kinds of reasons, I mean, all people are, of course, are going to make comparisons, but they have to recognize that when you're making comparisons course to course and aggregating across really different learning experiences, you're likely to run into trouble of comparing things that don't compare well. And what from the other individual course reports jumps out as potentially fruitful lines for further research? 
I would say one other big thing is I'm really interested in the things that are happening in the School of Public Health. Certainly within Harvard, the populations of people who are taking those courses are just very different from the populations of people taking the other courses. They're much more likely to have a degree. You won't find this in the reports yet, but in but in this year, the 2013-2014 year, the proportion of people who say that they're in those courses for sort of instrumental reasons is much higher than in other courses. So they're much more likely to say they're taking the course to earn a certificate to advance their career, to advance their education, that they're much more committed to completing the courses from the beginning. They're just a different group of people. And I'm interested in that for a whole bunch of different reasons. How are just courses that have people who are instrumentally committed to taking a course different from those like poetry, where people are mostly there for learning-based reasons. Um, but then two, you know, how do we think about the sort of policy implications of these large-scale online classes differently from sector to sector? You know, one of the things that you might be concerned about, about Harvard X, is that most of our students already have a bachelor's degree, that we're basically, maybe we're disrupting the market for lifelong learning, but there's not a lot of disruption happening in the market for people who haven't earned a degree to begin with. In some sectors, that might be a real problem. When you're teaching a clinical trials class, I'm not so sure. If we're providing learning experiences to people who've devoted their lives to public health and around the world, we can help them do their jobs better. Even if we're providing that to people who are already advantaged, like that seems to be a sort of social justice win, public policy win from my perspective. So sector to sector differences, I think, are interesting. I think the other thing that comes out of this report is just how limited our capacity is to say meaningful things in, in two dimensions. One, in a lot of places, it's really hard to figure out what people are learning. Uh, and that seems like the most important thing to be able to figure out. That's a problem for a couple of reasons. We just sort of inherit that from our parent institutions. Universities in general are not that great about figuring out what people are learning. It's even harder in our case because we probably have a much wider range of people's pre-existing capacities than other folks do. So if you're going to take Introduction to Computer Science at Harvard, we can assume you know that, that there's a certain... You know, kind of level of skills that you have in various dimensions in order to get into Harvard. And we can also probably assume that you're not going to spend one of your very precious credits taking a class that you already know the answers to. Like if you know the stuff in CS50, you're probably going to go on and take some other class. You'll, you'll pass out of it or test out of it or whatever else. Not necessarily the case online. Like people with all different kinds of capacities, including those people who might be like, I kind of know everything about CS50, but I just want to see if I can pass Harvard's class. So demonstration of competence at the end of CS50 doesn't necessarily tell us that much about what people have learned because we don't know sort of where they were to begin with. So we have some folks, for instance, this year who have added a computing readiness pretest into CS50 so we can get a little bit more data early on about, you know, what kinds of capacities people have. And then in other spaces, we just need to do a much better job figuring out how are we going to assess at scale particularly in the humanities, what people are learning if we really think multiple choice questions are probably not capturing what we care most about. So there's a team here that's working on developing some annotation tools. Um, annotation is one of the ways that over the last few millennia, humanists have demonstrated and developed their understanding. And it might be that we can capture some of that data and understand it a little better at scale and, and so forth. So there's some interesting things there. And if you were to distill everything you've learned from this project and mash it up with what else we know from MOOC data that's been made public over the last year or two, how would you summarize what we currently know and don't know? 
So first, I think we extend, in a number of important dimensions, we extend people's previous findings in ways that are actually pretty striking. You know, the, the percentage of students who finish a course through HarvardX is pretty similar to MITx, and it seems pretty similar to UPenn's Coursera, University of Edinburgh's Coursera. Some of our findings about persistence, um, how long people persist in the class seem to line up, although we've done the analyses a little differently with what other folks are saying, the proportion of people who already have an advanced degree, the tilt towards men, the fact that our students are older um, than a typical college student would be, all that seems to be pretty consistent with what other folks have found. I hope some of the, the contributions that we're making one substantial contribution is to start to trying to characterize all of the different use cases that people have in these courses and, and to highlight the fact that if we're going to understand how open online learning experiences are contributing to society, then we can't just narrowly focus on certification. We have to try to figure out all the different ways people are learning and having a meaningful experience. I think we've done some good writing, really characterizing how important it is to condition all of our research on, on the intentions of students, recognizing that there are lots of different underlying populations who are taking these courses. And if you don't try to tease out sort of which underlying population people are from, then the synthesis you make will be problematic, especially if you compare them to residential or even online, you know, for your college to your college experiences, where we know that the populations are all people who are working to earn a degree and are much more homogenous than the group of folks that we have here. And then I hope that we, in the findings that we provide, the detailed description of courses, give a sense of just what a diverse enterprise this is, you know, which is both exciting to think about all the different ways that people are exploring the space and exploring how these tools can be used in different environments, but also a caution that, that makes it harder to make generalizations that will stand up to close scrutiny. I think we have in a few places some particular kind of methods and analyses that would be useful for people in providing new insights. But I hope a lot of what we contribute is some framing around the conversation and ways of thinking about, number one, how important it is to respect the diversity of student intention and course intention. And then how important it is to think about how we want to put a frame and a context around this kind of research and, and being a little bit cautious about immediately going to residential college or online college as the frame, especially when a bunch of faculty are telling us they're explicitly not trying to do that. They're explicitly trying to do something different. Okay. Well, thanks for joining us. It's been a pleasure. I really enjoy getting the chance to talk about this stuff. That was Justin Reich, HarvardX and Berkman Research Fellow and visiting lecturer at MIT. And before leaving the subject, I'd like to return briefly to something Justin said regarding frames of reference. If you're a Degree of Freedom blog reader, you know that I've gotten intrigued recently with the idea of metaphors, namely the power of metaphors to define our understanding of something, in this case, my experience and other people's experiences taking MOOC classes. Justin mentioned that the obvious frame of reference, or metaphor, for a MOOC is a traditional residential college class. And before talking about what such a metaphor doesn't do for us, it's worth first highlighting its value with regard to putting students at ease when they enter a new environment, like that of a massive online classroom. For as weird as it was to be taking courses with hundreds of thousands of students last year, the metaphor of the college classroom, with which most of us are familiar, helped to anchor me through that experience. For even if scale meant certain familiar components of a conventional class were missing, each MOOC I took still was built around a syllabus, lectures, assignments, reading, tests, deadlines, and grades, all familiar items for anyone who's ever taken a college course, or a high school course for that matter. 
I bring this up because MOOCs are not the only way to learn online, and not even the only way to learn online massively. The first thing I ever called a MOOC, for example, was Connectivism and Connectivist Learning, taught by George Siemens and Stephen Downs, who you can hear on a previous Degree of Freedom podcast, also linked at the site. This class both taught and was built on the principles of connectivism, an educational theory model on what takes place in the human brain, where learning is measured by the net increase in neural connections represented in the connectivist class as nodes, i.e. students, in an online learning network. And while I never took connectivism or similar connectivist MOOCs, now called CMOOCs, to set them apart from the type of MOOCs most of us are familiar with, referred to by early MOOC pioneers as X-MOOCs, I know from Downs and others that the structure of a connectivist MOOC is so different from your typical edX or Coursera course that CNX MOOCs should really be categorized as completely distinct learning experiences. Within a CMOOC, for instance, there's no syllabus, no SAGE, no STAGE, no assignments, requirements, or grades, just parallel guided and unguided discussions going on across multiple social media with every person or node in the learning network playing the role of both student and teacher. Professor Siemens and Downs made it a point to publish daily lists of topics and resources, such as readings, audio, and video talks, as well as hold regular online office hours, which students were free to participate in, jump in and take over, or ignore. It sounds like an intriguing experience, and I look forward to participating in a CMOOC sometime in the future, at least to get a first-hand experience of what it's like. But from talking to Professor Downs and to people who participated in CMOOCs in the past, I think it's safe to say that it's like no other learning experience anyone's had before. In fact, the EdTech landscape is littered with novel experiences, especially in the area of open learning, where creative teachers are leveraging open educational resources, social media, and bright and engaged colleagues and students to build education from the ground up with browsers, iPods, and tablets replacing each component of the classroom in new and novel ways. And my reaction to all this innovation is bravo! But with that said, I don't think it's an accident that connectivism and connectivist learning drew a student body in the low four figures, while even the most limited interest XMOOC has drawn numbers in order of magnitude higher, with some XMOOC classes reaching a hundred or a thousand times the number of students enrolled in even the most popular experimental learning program. Now MOOCs, unlike other educational experiments, are obviously wired for big. And it may just be that students are drawn to XMOOCs because of their pedigree being free offerings from well-known and expensive colleges and universities. But I suspect the popularity of XMOOCs also derives from their familiarity, i.e. the comfort level provided by being built around the classroom metaphor. While I think developers of XMOOCs still have a lot to learn from both the theory and practice of connectivism, it will be interesting to see if those practices can be built into a system that currently provides students with the handrails of a familiar academic environment in which to work. But as Justin has pointed out, a single metaphor or frame of reference applied universally can lead to misunderstanding. For example, continuing to use the classroom metaphor when we look at MOOC data means treating tens of thousands of students who had valuable learning experiences, indeed got everything they wanted out of a course even if they didn't earn a certificate, as dropouts. I won't dwell on the kind of funnels Justin recommended as an alternative to the classroom metaphor, especially since I went on about them at length on the Degree of Freedom blog over the last couple of weeks. But now that it looks like MOOCs are not going to shake higher education to its foundations tomorrow, unless you're one of those who think that the best colleges and universities in the world sharing their best courses for free is some horrible nightmare that must be stopped at all costs, it's incumbent upon those of us who've always been cautious optimists about what MOOCs might eventually become to figure out how they can bring the most benefit to students of all ages everywhere. And there's no better place to start than by looking at the data that reflects real-world experiences by real-world students engaging in genuine and often life-transforming learning. On that note, it's time to sign off. 
But thanks again to Justin and to all of you, and I hope you'll be able to join us again on the next Degree of Freedom podcast. (laughs) 